House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm back again to entertain you. And so you probably turned the dial. <laughs> well, Mr. Martino, how's it going? It's going great. Listen, Back I've been in the saddle again. Yeah, you haven't been here for a while. You've been off for a week and uh, yeah. doing all your uh, wife's housework. And that's true. Yes. Such a nice man you are. You know, <laughs> I can't believe that. You know, vacuuming and dusting and doing the dishes and yeah, everything good. You know, but my work is never done. No, woman's work is never done, and I think that's she's right. going to get tired of you stretching her dresses out. <laughs> I'm just saying, I just personally, she's never complained to me, but I'm just thinking that, you know, mm. you're starting to stretch those out. Not saying that you gain right. too much weight, but. No, that's true, I am. But, you know, those pieces of deliveries are just starting to pack on. Contactless <laughs> delivery. Get, yeah, well, with you, how could it be? Um, <laughs> but, you know, we got, I'm getting all these compliments about you, so people do like oh, you, which is kind really? of strange. Yeah, they, they, can't, they keep telling me that I'm picking on you too much. <laughs> that, saying, why, why are you so mean to him? <laughs> wow. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just sort of um, terrible, I, Al. I'm sort of in shock because I didn't realize I was picking on you. I was I'm picking on you too much. It seems to be that. Uh, oh, this is all fun. This is they're 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 upset that I'm being mean to you. It's like, well, you know what? Well, thank you. Then you can do it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, then you can do the show and and pick on me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. I just say, but so you're the so boss. Yeah, well, I am, but you know, the nobody seems to care about that now. <laughs> I get pushed around. <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, and your reviews are doing good. Hey, people are are pretty happy with that. Um, oh, excellent. I don't know why, but um, you know. And uh, anyway, so speaking of of, of happy people, uh, we've got the author of a new book coming out called Vamp Until Ready. Sounds mm. like something down that you'd like, Dave. Oh, and absolutely. the author is James Magruder. Thank you for taking your time today to be here. Thanks for having me, Alan and David. Mm. Thank you. So um, where did it all start for you? <laughs> <laughs> you mean my writing career or this particular book? or? Yeah, let's talk about your life. My <laughs> life. Well... <laughs> No, no, but where did it start as in, okay, so, you know, I, well, with right, with writers, I like to get into kind of who they are mm -hmm. and kind of, uh, because something in your life um, initiates the time where you decide that you're going to write something and have people read it. Absolutely. And, yeah, and can, that's sort of what I like yeah. to get to. I can think of the moment I was in sixth grade, and this is the Chicago land, the Chicago suburbs. And uh, in English class, I had to write a paragraph based on a picture. It was a picture of like a Viking ship crossing the North Seas to Marad or Pillage. And the paragraph I wrote was of such, I don't know, such high quality for an 11-year-old that my teacher, Mrs. Miss Marcusilli, said to my parents, he's writing at a college-age level. And, and so suddenly their eyes swiveled to me and started paying me some attention. I thought basically it was initially to get parental attention in a household situation that you could say was a culture of scarcity. There's that, that theory about, you know, uh, in some homes it's like the siblings are all fighting for the emotional and financial resources of the parents. So that was the cauldron I was working in. And so I just started to think, it took years before I actually start to write, but that was when I knew, oh, I want to be a writer. And then, it, you know, that was the formative experience, that paragraph about the Vikings. Well, there you go. Uh, but, uh, but I, okay, so that might have got you into it, but oh. what, what, what was it that initiated uh, the point of you going, well, I want to actually have something I've written be published? Uh, well, I think that goes a, kind of along with it. You know, in high school, we had a literary magazine, and I thought, well, I can get into that. And then actually, I would do, 
I don't know. I was uh, I did as much theater in high school as anything else, and both for I did musicals, which sort of really shows up in Vamp until Ready. And uh, I remember my my professor, my professor, my high school teacher, telling me, "Can you re rewrite uh, this ending to Fiddler on the Roof? Uh, you know, there's a transition here that doesn't seem right. We can't do it technically." So I said, "Sure." You know, that's actionable. Uh, uh, but there I was, 15, rewriting the ending of a <laughs> venerated American <laughs> classic musical. And then my senior year, we were doing Godspell, which is a lot loosey-goosey. Loose. And I was known as a writer at that point, so they had me rewrite some of the sketches in Godspell. And I drew heavily on my intense knowledge of Charlie's Angels, and, uh, which was very hot at the time, and uh, Gone with the Wind. So I was kind of, so I was thinking like my theatrical career, my adaptation career started in high school without my kind of even knowing it. Well, I I, I just wonder um, who was your favorite angel? <laughs> oh, my favorite angel, um, I was Jacqueline Smith, right? The, you know, I wasn't going to go for the obvious. I wasn't going to go for Farah. I can't even remember the third one, but Jacqueline Smith had the straight hair, right? Not the long wavy stuff. No, that's Kate Jackson. Oh, it? then I like oh, Kate Jackson best. She was the dykiest. Yeah, that's that's what, that's exactly how I saw it. Right. But I wasn't going to say that. Right. You know, I'm I'm politically correct. Oops, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm the one that follows the right, rules. Right. Oh, know. that's oh. <laughs> what rules? Well, what rule book hey. is that? Yeah. Well, hey. <laughs> hey, it's enough of that. Sorry. I tell my students, hey, my students, it's like. Go ahead. I'm an adjunct. You can't cancel me. You know, always, leave, you know, I don't yeah. need this job. <laughs> You're lucky to have me, old white man. <laughs> That's what, you know, I say that all the time, but nobody listens. Right. So I'm an adjunct. They, they say I'm picking on people. I'm just, um <laughs> Well, that, but that's that's pretty interesting, but... Um, it's still not what you want. Well, no, yeah, actually, no. I, I just, let's, let's, let's go further. Did you like high school? Oh, yeah, I had a great time. I mean, I was, like, such a show queen, and I was, like, the last person to know I'd be a screaming queen. Um, but, uh, you know, by, you know, I, I developed a sense of humor early on because we moved around a lot and always had to make new friends, and my way of making friends was to, to be cruel about the, the weakest members of the herd. So, which is terrible. I regret it today, but that was my way to stay in, you know, stay off the bottom of the food chain. And by senior, junior, and senior year, and I was, you know, very driven. Uh, you know, by the end, by the end of high school, all the we the brainiacs, we were just all in the same classes, and we started to give each other slack. This is the '70s, so I had a good time. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's the world's changed a lot since the '70s. I don't know if you've noticed, um, but I'm just so. When you look at the world today, and you and you're publishing this new book today, um, do you feel like you have to change what you write or how you write it to fit the world today? No, because as I alluded earlier, or before we actually started taping. Um, at this point, I'm 60 years old. No one really cares what I have to say. And, and my previous three books, you can't say they burned down any houses, but they're very important to me. And I, I do have readers, and my stuff is very – so I don't, I don't temper or change things. And, and, again, since my stuff always so far has occurred in the past, I don't have to worry about things like cell phones and the Internet. And uh, so I'm basically recuperating my past and settling scores. With with um, them's what you know gave me a pink belly in gym class. Now, uh, uh, you know, basically nobody really does want to hear. Although a place like Rattling Good Yarns Press does, and there is a market out there for what for what I have to say. Now, if I were in my twenties writing for a younger audience, I would go lickety split into a TV writing room. Um, but I don't even have a television, which tells you, like, people say, you should write for TV. And I said, well, I'd have to buy one first, or, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> and, and I also think that, you know, when I, I got, circling back to an earlier question, I got, let's say, serious about the writing, or writing in 
you know, a Borning and musicals in vitro, is I think that after 30 years working as a dramaturg, which is kind of like a story editor for playwrights, I think what I think what my gift is is story, and what and I didn't write fiction seriously until 2002, so I'm a late starter. But I behind that I'd had 15 years in the theater, and I know what makes a show work. And if you apply certain principles of playwriting to fiction writing, you you have in a way you have a leg up. But it's not just the ability to write dialogue; it's the ability to write scenes. And you know, because I'm not the kind of writer who could ever spend three pages discussing how beautiful the sky was <laughs> or what somebody's face looked like, because because uh, in the theater, the theater does it for you. Uh, you know, and I always feel, and it's even four books in, the sentences I hate to write are the ones like, you know, he opened the pack of cigarettes and lit a lucky strike, or she crossed the room to answer the door. Because that's like, oh, that is so boring. That is like, that's blocking. <laughs> and in the theater, they do it for you. The director does it. Yep. And you don't have to say, oh, her pale oval face was framed by chestnut curls and her pertinent, but the actress is that. So I'm, I'm completely free of writing that. And then, um, and like interior moods, like as you walk, you know, that's unless it's a monologue on stage. So in, in a way, fiction is harder because you have to add those things. And yet it's, it's yeah, yeah I, I find it much harder. But I do find that my, my background in the theater has helped me shape a chapter shape a scene so within any given like the five sections of Vamp until ready each section has like 10 scenes in it and I'm just very careful of the scene has to happen somebody has to want something either get it or a stalemate and then we want to know what you know it's it, it's a that's a very long-winded way of saying I think I've gotten good at suspense because I've mm -hmm. been in a theater without writing without writing mysteries or thrillers and so your characters that you've got, you've got a, um, as you call it, a network of protagonists. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you create those characters? Like you've got Carrie Dunkler, who was the uh, boy turned masturbator or masturbator, <laughs> <laughs> and and things like. How do you how do you? So each of these characters you've got in this this network. Mm -hmm. Are they people you've worked with or you've been with before or something? Um, how, how does that come to you? Well, that's a great question, Alan. Um, the, the first section with Carrie Dunkler and his foster brother, David, and uh, the theater director and the playwright, that's sort of a quartet of men, two, two older men, two younger men who are foster brothers. And... Um, when I, my first run of stories in early in 2002 to 2006 was basically, I was 42 writing about my 22-year-old self making really stupid choices in the men I chose to slept with. Uh, so it was kind of like a Hardy Boys mystery book. Like, why did I sleep with this guy? And so there was a bit of that left in Carrie Dunkler. Um, and then, but in Carrie Dunkler, there's... Uh, we mention his his uh, half-sister, and then he also works with a woman named Christy, and I just happened to throw in the detail that Christy was a mother of three, and they didn't have a lot of money, and she worked two jobs, and I didn't know how they kept it together. And so I finished the first one, and I said, well, I want to write straight women. So I started with Christy. And then Carrie appears in part two. It's not really his, but it's about Christy and then Issa, this you know, uh, a slutty Mary Poppins who upends this family by being their au pair one summer. And each, and, uh, and I'm sort of noodling around here, but like Carrie Dunkler and Gavin Steig, who runs the theater, they're in all of the sections. They either have starring roles or they're mentioned or they get a little scene. So the network just kind of got growing. And by the time I'd finished with the straight women... They're the two straight, all three straight women um, had dated this, this sad, sacky straight guy named Mark Shinner. And I thought, I want to write about him. Because if I'm extending myself writing straight women, I might as well throw a bone to heterosexual men. And I really enjoy, and again, I would never have known who Mark Shinner was. He just evolved and grew out of what the other, what had happened before. 
So it's both, or it, there is a preordained, that would be Ithaca, that would be the theater, that every section would take place around a show, but then it just grows organically. And like, and I, as I may have alluded to, I'm, what I'm most proud of with Vamp Until Ready is that I've made just about everybody up. How do you get their development? Like, how, like so when you have a character and then they start going through things, how, how does that develop them ah. as, as a personality? Yeah, well, I'm thinking, you know, I was saying like, oh, action and, you know, use the theater. So the beginning of part two, this is Christy and her three daughters. And the very first line is Christy was in the middle of a, a, a double shift when her mother stroked out. So I present, so I present her and the mother is lying at home four blocks away. She's, she's dead. So that, like, the stakes are huge, and then I just took Christy home, and she's got the three daughters, because I've mentioned that before, and I just investigated what that would be like to encounter your dead mother, and then you have to call the cops, and then she's thinking about where to put the girl, and so, and then she's, then her first call then is to Carrie Dunkler, who we've seen in the first part, and so... I wouldn't say, like, it's a nice strategy to kill somebody to get the stakes going, but I just thought, let's just kill off the mother. So that was, and so I just thought about Christy. She's single. She's working two jobs. The money is tight. She's got, you know, the three girls, each who's different, and, like, a, a very minor character in the middle daughter, and again, turns out to become a Hollywood starlet, and she sort of saves the day in part four. It's, I guess it's, you know, and I, I, it's weird. I can't claim to have any scientific method for creating characters, but th what was fun was that, you know, okay, so I'll just roll with what I think this Christie woman is. And, um, and then she goes through changes in the rest of the book. Actually, she has sort of a bad end. Anyway, I, that was a bad answer, or not a, not a very good answer. <laughs> Um, well, have, have any of these characters, as you're developing them and you're, you're creating them kind of organically, have they ever done anything that uh, surprised you? Oh, yeah. Uh, like, all the time. It, they especially surprise me when I'm writing a play, because that old saw of, mm -hmm. of, you know, I just sit down and the characters talk to me is kind of true <laughs> for theater. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, uh, yeah, so it turns out that David, the, the foster, uh, Carrie's uh, foster brother is very successful and goes to New York and works in ACT UP, turns out to have been a sex addict. And I couldn't have predicted that, setting it out. But the fact that he is a sex addict really sends his brother into a tailspin. So, and, uh, and then the beginning of the end is like that middle daughter who becomes a starlet says she just happens, you know, Parade Magazine, that do doofus thing they stick in every Sunday paper across the country. <laughs> well, you may not even read papers anymore, but I'm old school. <laughs> but I little, and so, so, uh, so little, uh, little um, Darcy Schroyer does an interview, and she says, I love, what's your favorite food? And she says, I love, when I want to break the bank calorie-wise, I want my old pal Carrie Dunkler's mint chocolate chip brownie and crustless quiche. So I thought, all right, I, she just, that was a surprise that she got that Parade Magazine interview because she wants publicity. And then, of course, then what happens is, because people actually, at least in 1992, still read <laughs> newspapers and read Parade Magazine, so Carrie is deluged with offers for recipes, Macy's calls him down to New York, they want to license his brownie, to tie in with the movie star. And again, that is all just completely a surprise to me. But then when I think about it, when hopefully when it's all over, oh, that made sense. That was kind of always there. But, you know, again, I don't know if that's even any better of an answer. But. Um, is it difficult for you to write um, from being a playwright, let's say, to writing a book? Um, Yes. I think the hardest thing of all is short stories. I'm trying to finish some. Um, as I said, playwriting has been much easier, uh, but I also haven't had any legitimate success with my own original plays. And I think that's partly because this culture is shifting away and there are already too many old white uh, gay male playwrights 
like they're just stacked up ahead of me. No, if, if anyone, they want to find the young queer playwright of color, and that's great because they're doing some amazing stuff. So I'm kind of out to pasture as a playwright, but I I will work for hire on musicals. And again, if you've got a great director running the show, and I've been blessed to have my really good pal, Michael Mayer, who directed Spring Awakening and Green Day's American Idiot and uh, developed them uh, for, and the Adam, Adam Driver. Is his name Adam Driver? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Adam Driver just did a burn this revival. He's a very, very busy director and a good, and so if you have a director in hand who can edit for you, it's just, you're just writing for, uh, because a, 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 a libretto for a musical, it's like you're writing in chunky crayons because it's all about getting to the song, writing just the right launch. There's a lot of craft to it, but you can't say it's like Proust. Proust could never succeed as a book writer on a musical. So in a way, there's more play writing as in rot in, in writing a musical, and I'll do that for money because the commercial theater at the moment doesn't care what color you are or how old you are. So, um, so I, I feel very at ease writing, writing music and knowing that it will change 500 times. Um, and, and again, I've had two musicals on Broadway where the heat is on you if they're not laughing at what you thought was going to be a joke. Two nights in a row where it lies there, you, the, you've got to write a new one. Uh, so you can't get precious. You can't get precious about playwriting or uh, uh, musical writing because the audience will tell you if it stinks. The audience will let you know when they're bored. You hear those programs rustling. You know, you can't tell with a, a, a reader, uh, a reader of a book, they could just skip over. And the other, the other lesson about writing for theater is that the audience is only going to hear it once. They can't go back and reread um, they, where they can, oh, I didn't get that paragraph, or that sentence kind of threw me. It's just going by, and it's all happening now. So they're two, they're very related media, but they also have their advantages and disadvantages. And the biggest disadvantage of maybe playwriting is you have to count on an audience, a paying audience, and they're hard to get. <laughs> and they're never, each individual audience member is wrong with their criticisms, but as a, as a collective, they're always right. Harold Clerman once said. Yeah. Well, I just, I just wonder, but, you know, because when you're doing a, a, a live play or there's a, a stage performance, you're getting that reaction immediately. You're getting that reaction as it happens yeah. uh, to what you're doing, whereas in a book you're not. Yeah. Right? It takes longer. But with nowadays, with all of the social media, which you avoid, obviously, um, people can interact with your book much quicker now. Yes. Provided. But that's obviously, but you stay away from that. Well, let's, I mean, again, it's, it's not a moral stance. It's more like. No, no, yeah. no. I, I, uh, I, no I, yeah, I wasn't saying that, but yeah. you yourself right now, up to now, haven't really jumped on that social media bandwagon, so to speak. So you're not really aware of what they're saying about you too much. Yeah. On, well, on, on that. I was on Facebook for like seven or eight years. I got on it when my first novel was published. And I got off it uh, in April of 2018 because uh, on Head Over Heels, the Go-Go's musical, I co-wrote. The original writer who left the project or was made to leave the project uh, in his Facebook post compared me to a tick on his dick. And that was, he said, it's April, and that's parasite season. You know what that means. I have to look out for ticks. And I find myself this week with the biggest tick on my dick ever. I mean, legally wasn't allowed to use my name, but there was a picture of me because our show was crying out in San Francisco. And that was bad enough, but it was like all the people who were, like, chiming in, who knew nothing of the circumstances. Like, yeah, Magruder should die. We're an asshole. Death to parasites, and it's like, it's like, uh, well, I've gotten a lot of bad reviews in my day, but who knew that an ad hominem attack would take me down? So I just left, and I don't regret because I spent a lot of time on board, and 
And again, I don't need new things to get me angry. You know, four years of Trump was enough. Anyway, <laughs> so so I don't, but, and so, but, but with Vampids already, I'm, you know, the book is just hitting people's hands. It's going to take a few weeks for anybody to post a review on Amazon or Goodreads or my friends will get back to me, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, but, yeah, it's not instant. It's not like tonight's episode of Scrubs. Scrubs, listen to me, I'm dating myself. Like tonight's episode of the of Car Fifty Four, where are you? Yeah. Uh, uh, is really the bomb. Um, it's yeah. really ginchy. Uh, it's like that. There's none of that instant turnaround, um, and, yeah. and I think that's for the good for books. Yeah, I, I guess I guess it is. It's just it's certainly different. I think that um, I know what you mean by by being called a dick. You know, a tick on a dick. I mean, I have never been called that, but I've been called a lot of other colorful things. But uh, I think you have to grow kind of a hard shell to get through today's social media. Hmm. Yeah, and like, like there are like Broadway chat rooms, and I've been talking to them because I, you know, I think there's such a theatrical tie-in uh, with them already. And and I told the woman who runs uh, Talk in Broadway, which I've been. I've been a lurking for years because if I stopped lurking and started weighing in, I wouldn't do anything else because I'm a man of vicious opinions. And, and, and it'd be the same thing. I, I'm really glad I was off Facebook for the Biden-Trump election season because you can just get lost in the hate and you add to the hate. And I'd be happy to add to the hate because it's my hate and my hate is right. And, and all of you people who aren't vaccinated, you should die sooner rather than later. You're, you're, oh my, idiots. Oh, I mean, are freaking idiots. But I don't want. I see. I don't want that to be me. That Mister Spleen all the time. I have to keep it in check, or I'm impossible to live with. Um, well, I, I think it, it just has to be separate. Like, as far as my social media, when I run through it, if anybody's a, a like Trump or they're really into that whole sort of thing, I just don't don't let them in my uh, in my circle. Right. Right. And then then I don't. And even if they're a pro, really far left and far right, just it doesn't matter if they're doing twenty four seven of nothing but politics on their site. I, I really don't want to be a part of that. But if then, that makes sense. I'm, that no. I agree, you know. But. but I'm sure, Alan, you've discovered in your, like, you find out that everyone you went to high school with is Republican, and you just have to talk back. It's like, I thought oh, yeah. you were a reasonable person. Yeah, well, no, the thing is, I, I think I think what I've done is I've done that. I, I went down that road back in the Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. Trump, uh -huh. 16, and, yeah. and so then I realized as I pulled back that, that's not what my social media is going to be for. Yeah. So I, I've kind of drifted away from that because you're right. You can get so wrapped up in it and get into so much trouble and so many fights that it's yeah. not really worth the time. Yeah. That's all. It's just because it, nothing gets accomplished. But it's um, instantaneous. You get, you get to go into yeah. that like, and then calm yeah. down Blah! all the time. And, you know, that's an emotional jolt. And some, yeah. some people have less, just, than, less than interesting lives. That's why yeah. they turn to Facebook. Well, that's sort of what I mean. I, I don't think it's that. It, it doesn't really accomplish much because at the end of the day, you don't know who you're yelling at even or if they really care about what right. they're saying or if they're saying it just to create some sort of drama, you know. Um, so I kind of I, I kind of shy away from that now. I get enough of it here at the radio station that I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, so what? So what? How did? How does that affect a, a writer like you? Um, all of this stuff going on in the world, because I, for me, I think the whole Trump and the whole this whole last little five years or so, whatever's been all the stuff going on in the U.S., I sort of feel that it's, it's kind, of, kind of took me by surprise, and it's kind of upsetting that so many people were on board with this whole thing. But with all of that going on. Um, when you're sitting there trying to put together like Vamp until ready while all this is going on, plus a pandemic and protesters and anti-maskers and all this stuff going on, 
does that affect your writing? Yeah, I mean, it, it can. It's like I just do my, I mean, I wish I had, as they say, a better practice where I would get up and write for three and a half hours, but, um, and that would be, that would be wonderful, and maybe I will one day grow into that, but um, I think it helps that I don't have a television, um, or, you know, I mean, I know, like, the, the literal idiot box is not, I mean, I could, I could be on a constant news feed via my, uh, via my laptop, but I choose not to, partly because I don't know where to go. I mean, when I, you know, I'll look at the New York Times, I'll look at Huffington Post, I'll look at, um, uh, well, the Washington Post has a firewall, and I'll look at CNN a few times a day. And that's kind of how I stay. And I also get, uh, I have a subscription to The Economist, which is like punishment, um, especially when you fall behind. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, I know way too much about China and Burkina Faso at the moment than I ever knew before. Um, but with all the noise out there, I, I actually think it's wonderful to be 60. And it's wonderful to spend half of my life not on the Internet. Um, because I know how to be quiet and still and to listen, because that's what I need to do to write, is to just, just to get in the zone where you're listening um, and building a world. Um, and uh, hmm. sort of, yeah, that's all I can think about. Yeah, well, I just, I just wonder if, if, if um, because I, I would imagine as a playwright, um, a lot of the social unrest that goes on around you, or even the personal unrest you absorb and you put that into your, into your play uh, in one way or another. So I wonder if it's the same for you with your books. Uh well, as I said, uh, um, I'm still, and again, I'm kind of through with the autobiographical stuff, uh, but I really was, when I started writing fiction, and it, it was, first, why did I sleep with that person? Or, like, my first book is about when I was 16 and my mother found Jesus and I found out I was queer and, and I became obsessed with Broadway musicals. And then, you know, in Vampital, uh I'm actually not sure what my next book will be if I have another, if I have another novel in me. But I, if I do, I want to make sure that it's contemporary, because everything I've, all the fiction I've published, none of it, with one exception, has happened after 2005. It's still, I'm still like digging, digging, digging into the past, and and. Uh, trying to make sense of situations and people. And again, but then people say, well, why don't you write a memoir? And it's like, well, I'm not interested. I need the out. I need the out to make something up, to make something better. I need to have room for surprise. I don't want to control the narrative that much, I find. Hmm. Well, after writing fiction or plays or... Uh do you do anything in between to between uh, to decompress or recharge? Um, I, <laughs> I'm just going to try to think. What is that? That slim fasting, a, a shake at breakfast, <laughs> a shake at lunch, and a healthy meal at night. No, um, actually, I just got off the hardest thing I will ever do, which is I spent five years writing a long book of nonfiction on commission. It was a money job. It turned into a labor of love. Uh, and it's going to come out next year, and it's a book about the first 50 years of Yale Repertory Theater. Because I went to Yale, the drama school, and I've taught there, and, and I interviewed 130 people, and, you know, as, 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 as blousy and gregarious as I sound in this interview, I actually don't want to call strangers on the phone and talk to them. So I really admire that Alan David, you can just just be free to talk to anybody. Um, but I had, to, I had to stick to a truth. And the, 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 I think the charge in this instance with the nonfiction to be um, faithful, fair, uh, uh, and, uh, and write good sentences really slowed me down. I don't ever want to do that again. You'd say that was... Uh, yeah, I don't do anything really but write and play with the cats and, you know, I, I cook a little. Huh. Hmm. 
but I'd be a busier man if I were younger because I would try to be doing the television thing. <laughs> Yale, is that like a college or something? Oh, it's this, it's this dump in the middle of Connecticut uh, oh. in, the shadow of, <laughs> in the shadow of Quinnipiac College just down the road. Oh. So you, you do what you have to. Right, uh, right. You know, you, I worked hard you for the for. money. Yeah, so hard for it. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just so if someone if someone okay someone's never heard of you before they're listening now and they go this guy sounds kind of interesting, and they were to buy one book what book of yours would you suggest to them? I think it would be Vampets Already. It's sort of the um, it's the most inclusive you could say. Uh, it's it's not filled with intergenerational gay sex, for example. Um, oh, well, <laughs> and, Where, where's the cock? Right, right, I know. Uh, and, um, and Love Slaves of Helen Hadley Hall, which I wrote, it took 20 years to write and publish, it's set at Yale, and it's written in such a highfalutin tone. It, it, you know, it would just put you off. Sugarless is wonderful because it's, it's a, it's a coming-of-age story, and teenage problems are always... but. But Vampets Already, I mean, the, the significance of the title for me, the book was originally, and for years was, I thought of it as called Save Yourself. Because all of these, this network, these five or six characters, their lives get saved just by working backstage or on stage. But a, a, um, a, a lesbian memoir came out just last year called Save Yourself, so I had to scram, because Save Yourself is uh, a theater axiom, axiom where if everything else is... Oh, my. ...up on stage, what do you do? Save Yourself. Um, uh, so I was looking for something else that would kind of describe waiting for your life to begin, in a way, and so that was, so I was thinking, of, and so Vamp Until Ready, these, these characters are all... Things happen to them by being affiliated with each other and the theater that lets them start their lives or find out what their lives could be about. So it's, it's a very hopeful book, and although there are a couple of deaths in it, it, it I think it ends, it ends happily. I mean, it's hard for me to write a happy ending. My, my happiest short story ending involved my getting gonorrhea in Paris in 1980. That was the happy ending. Um, so I guess vamp, just because it's the most inclusive and, you know, straight people are in it and people like, people, you know, after Glee and everything and all these comp competitive TV shows, people like backstage. I think there's been a resurgence of interest in backstage stories. Hmm. And is French gonorrhea different than American gonorrhea? Well, it's called le strie, which means the tickle. Um, uh, but, uh, but I think in every language... <laughs> Or every culture. Oh my God! You know, here's the rosé talking. It was the. It was the. Um, well, I don't know if either of you gentlemen have ever been checked out for gonorrhea, but there's this little wire thing with a swab at the end, and they just put it up there. And I quote myself: "They wiggle it around like an uncooperative car key." <laughs> And they pull it out and then and then put it on a petri, you know, and so yeah. But it, actually, that's that's in, that's in my book. Let me see it, um, and yeah. that's uh, yeah. really that's really uh, it. Actually, does have a happy ending, so to speak. Uh, right, right, yeah, not not that kind. Not not not, not the massage parlor happy. Right, not that. Wow, uh, I, I would, I'm afraid to ask, but who are your Biggest influences, whether they're writers or uh -huh. performers or singers or dancers or, um, or doctors. Uh, Alcibiades, Goethe, and Shakespeare. Now, um, uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, it, these, and some of these books are getting canceled, and I can see why. Like, I don't know if you've ever read A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, posthumously published in one of Pulitzer. Um, uh, that is just a gold mine of American comedy, uh, and if uh, 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 that's a huge influence. There's a uh, Herman Wouk who died at 104 last year. Who knew? Um, he lived that long, forgotten but not gone. Um, 
he, before he became like a mass market novelist, he published a book about his childhood in the 20s called The City Boy or The Adventures of Herbie Bookbinder. And I found that in a library in, in middle school. And I was just instantly hooked. And, and I've read it maybe 15 times since I was 12. And, and now when I read it, it's like, oh, my God, I feel like that book has just seeped into my consciousness and my sentences. So that is an influence that I can't say I'm completely proud of because it's not Tolstoy or Jane Austen. It's this mass market. Um, but, I, you know, I love, I love Dawn Powell, who is a forgotten, now she's not forgotten, American comic novelist. I veer towards the comedy. Um, but... Uh, and you might say, like, what do I do when I'm not writing? I'm still a voracious reader. Um, and, for example, I re if I'm not reading my friends' books, I just go back to classics. And during COVID, once I could finally read again, it took a while, I reread Anna Karenina, which I hadn't read since I was 23. And I was too young to read it then. I was just reading for story. But now, all these years later, having been a writer myself, and they always writers voted as the greatest novel ever, by page 10, I said, yep, this is the real deal in ways I couldn't have imagined or appreciated at 23. So I, I'm not going to say Anacorn is an influence. That was just, <laughs> I was just going off on a tangent that you can, there's a lot to be said for rereading books. There are also books you go back to and it's like, wow, that's really for teenagers. That's the time to read it. Um, yeah, but I wonder if that also happens when you go back and reread your own writing. If you look back at some of your older work, do you ever kind of look and kind of go, wow, I would do it differently now? Yes, yes. That, 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 well, that novel that I wrote that was unpublished when I thought I was going to die, I like reread a few chapters. I was like, oh, my God. Obviously, the person can write, but he's so psychologically defended that it's right. a really hard read. Um, so... But, you know, I, I think, you know, my, these new stories I'm working on are much looser. And they're actually, a lot of them are set in the present. And, and I, I think I told you that the title of, the tongue-in-cheek title of the next book of stories is going to be called No One's Looking at You, which is a tongue-in-cheek way of describing my position as an old white queer in America. I mean, women have experienced, like, being invisible after the age of 40 for decades, but white guys, it's new to us, and it hurts. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> very painful. Yeah, uh, you know, but, you know, I'm, I'm further know. along in my thinking about it than Mitch McConnell. <laughs> who, when he dies, should be buried between Justice Scalia and Phyllis Schlafly. Um, Oh, it's a world. So, listen, <laughs> yeah. uh, now, how do, how do people get a hold of you then? You're not on social media, or where do you hang out in Grinder? Like, where, where do people find out about you and your books? And um, God, you know, now you can make me think I need to revive my website. I had a website. It didn't look like anybody ever went there. Uh, <laughs> somebody <laughs> created a wiki page for me, uh, uh, whoever that is, and it wasn't my mother, because uh, she once asked me, is the Internet open on the weekends? Um, uh, you're making me think I should, I should actually, that there are people who are going to want to buy this book. So thank you for this interview. Uh, well, of course. I mean, Amazon know. or Goodreads, um, you know, just if you know how to spell my name, you can find me. Yeah. Well, we'll do the best we can. Well, on thank our website. you. <laughs> maybe, maybe, um, it, you know, if you have a phone number or something, we can put it out. Oh, well, that too. And, address. you know, it's. It's like that episode of Modern Family where he gets the thing, the thing on the side of the truck where he basically says his wife is great for a happy ending. Speaking of happy endings, <laughs> yeah. there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Well, that's what they say unless yeah. you have to live through it, right? I, I you know, on a dick. Yeah. Hey, but I wonder, you know, when you when you say that. Um, Things like I, I, I just wonder if if things will influence you with these past few years, like with the pandemic and stuff, and it gets into your writing without you knowing it. Well, we'll see. But I, I found out that I, I kind of still need twenty years to figure out. I need twenty years of 
of a, 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 a low, low simmer uh, to figure it out. Because these, these news stories, when no one's looking at you, they actually are dealing with my life that started 20 years ago, and I met my husband. So I'm, I'm starting, to, I'm moving into the 21st century. <laughs> so if I'm alive 20 years from now, you can expect my amazing COVID novel long after everyone's forgotten what it is. Or was. Does it make you feel a little bit vulnerable when you write about a lot of things in your own life that you went through? Uh, no. You know, uh, I'm a natural ham and an exhibitionist. I mean, I, you know, uh, uh, and in personal interactions and kinds of friends I make and meet and hang on to, you just, and you get to be my age, it's like, there's no time for small talk. There's no time for just shooting the shit. Oh, my. It's like time really is all we have. So I just want to, if I'm writing about myself, I want to, it's an act of recuperation and uh, kind of analysis, but also I'm just putting it out there. I suppose, you know, if I had children, it, I would feel differently. I might not even be a writer, but uh, it's like this was me. And me was honest, and me was funny slash sad. Huh. Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting conversation here. Hmm. So uh, we'll have pictures up later for everyone. Okay. And, um, you know, they can. Yes, that is my real hair. <laughs> I always tell my student that is my real hair, and I was not convicted of that charge. No, but I can't. No. But Indiana wants me, Lord. I can't go back there. No. Oh God, you no. guys don't know that song. You're so young. <laughs> you Indiana wants me, Lord. I can't go back there. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's the we're youngins. You that's know. the rosé yeah. singing. I'm only 22, <laughs> so I don't know anything about that stuff. So, well. <laughs> Wow, what a conversation. Um, so we've learned a lot. <laughs> I hope, as they say on eBay, item as described. Yeah. Well, actually, we've learned a lot. Mr. French gonorrhea. And right, French gonorrhea. And, it's a funny know. story. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> until until you got the, the knife right, down right. there. You know, yeah. but, um, wow, interesting. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time. Now, well, the book we're, we're featuring. Thank you so much, Alan and David. Um, well, uh, and again, it, now you're going to make me think, like, how can I become a media whore in the next 20 days? <laughs> Not going to happen. Type like David. It's a, yeah. please, just get on it, you know. Right. Get your, All right, your well, you gentlemen, have a great day. Well, thank you. And, and, again, let's talk about your book. It's called Vamp Until Ready. Our guest is James Magruder, and we appreciate you being here. Thanks. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.